Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to read verse 15 and keep reading. It says, and for this reason, he, that's Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal life. For where there is a testament, there must of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. We're going to pause and we're going to pick up the rest of the text when we get there. It wasn't... Too many years ago that a man came into my my office and he said, you know what? I've been thinking about Christianity and I've been thinking about Christ and I've been thinking about all of this stuff. But that there's something about Christianity that disturbs me. It upsets me. And I go, what is that? He goes, it's such a bloody religion. And I said, if you mean, if you're asking me. Why did Jesus have to die on a cross in such a cruel fashion? Because the Bible clearly says that Jesus is crucified. He is slaughtered, if you will. He is put to death. And the reason why the Bible says, I told him that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. You see, he wanted to believe in a religion that had faith and that had works and that had goodness and that had all of the things that that you would think that might make a religion popular, but he didn't want a right relationship with God based on the sacrifice for his sin, because in order to do that, he would have to acknowledge his sin, that it was a real problem, and that there needed to be a real solution. And so, as we begin this portion, sometimes, again, we have to return to the theme of the book of Hebrews in order to understand what we're reading. The book was written in the first generations of Jewish believers who had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But remember, they had faced two powerful and persistent challenges. They faced the reoccurring temptation to return to what they perceived to be the purity of Judaism, the purity of the Mosaic law, of the tabernacle and the sacrifices. So there was this temptation to go back to what they knew, and then there was this temptation, this this fierce temptation... Because of the persecution from family and authorities that placed constant pressure on them. Because you can imagine when a Christian man became, when a Jewish man became a Christian, sometimes his wife and his family would leave him. If a man or a woman came to Christ, it sometimes cost them 
so very, very much. And so there was this constant pressure to abandon confidence and trust in Christ. And the book of Hebrews is an exhortation to hold on unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Because he who promised is faithful. And so the ninth chapter contains, will will contrast the earthly sanctuary or tabernacle with the heavenly sanctuary. The old earthly sanctuary was inferior. The new heavenly sanctuary is superior. In the old sanctuary, it was temporary. Remember, it had a temporary high priest. It even had a temporary sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews draws our attention to Jesus. He is the one who offers the sacrifice in verse 11. He does it with his own blood in verse 12. The sacrifice is permanent in verse 12. It's done not over and over and over again like the sacrifices in the temple, but it's done once for all. The sacrifice is precious. The sacrifice is permanent. The sacrifice is powerful. It brings about redemption in verse 12, 13, 14, 15. So what does the heavenly sanctuary and the earthly sanctuary have in common? The writer of Hebrews says both of them had to be ratified with blood. Both of them required purification by blood. Not just any blood, but the blood of an innocent victim. In the old earthly sanctuary, Moses sprinkled the blood. The source was an animal. The animal could never take away sin, and so therefore could never cleanse personal guilt. In the heavenly sanctuary, Jesus sprinkles the blood in verse 23. He himself is the sacrifice in verses 25 through 28. Jesus appears once to die for sin, verse 26 through 28. He appears to pray for us in verse 24. He will come back to rule over us in verse 28. And so Jesus is this great high priest and the mediator of the new covenant. He is superior and supreme in his revelation over angels, Moses, priests. Christ and Christianity offers a new tabernacle in heaven, a superior sacrifice forever. And so again, over and over and over again, the writer of Hebrews is going to make this point, but part of the point that might be lost on you as he's talking about this reoccurring theme of blood is because we underestimate our sin and our imperfection. In order for us to have friendship and fellowship with God, we have to be cleansed of our sin. We have to be cleansed of our imperfection. How is this possible? The whole New Testament has been written in order to answer that question. Jesus makes it possible. Jesus purifies everything in our hearts. Now, I want you to think, I need you to think, think, think about what the writer of Hebrews is saying when he's talking about this sprinkling of blood. There was the physical sprinkling of blood on the earth in order to purify the vessels and the instruments that were being used in order to bring us into a right relationship with God. 
Jesus purifies everything on the earth and in heaven in verses 23 and 24. The point becomes Jesus purifies us by his never repeated sacrifice. And so again in verse 15 it says, and for this reason he's the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Just very quickly, because we've already gone over this. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Remember, Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. This, number two, the saints are the recipients of an eternal inheritance. Number three, those under the old covenant could receive forgiveness. And this is part of the point that the writer of Hebrews is making. A little girl called me on my radio program, I think, um, earlier this week. And she asked me the question, hey, tell me, tell me how people in the Old Testament were saved. And I told her that people in the Old Testament were saved exactly the same way as in the New Testament. By grace, through faith, and a sacrifice. The difference is that by grace and through faith and a sacrifice, the Old Testament men and women were looking forward to the fact that God himself would provide a way to heaven. By the way, if a person drug a goat or a sheep or a couple of turtle doves to a temple and they killed it, would that be a satisfying solution to the problem of their sin? Or are they going to need something else? And you see, in every generation, you would need something else. Even, a, well, maybe, maybe little girls understand better even than little boys. Do you know about buying something on credit. Most of you do. Have you ever purchased something on credit where they said, look, we're going to just give you this, whatever it is, and then you pay it back over time. They extend to you credit. Maybe you bought a house and you didn't pay cash for your house. And they said, hey, if you pay us $1,000 or $3,000 or whatever your house payment is, if you pay $1,000 over 100 months over your, for your $100,000 house, you get to move into the house and then you pay it off on credit. The people in the Old Testament were saved on credit. They were looking Forward to the purchase. You are saved on the basis of the purchase that has been made in the past. You see, the Bible is answering the biggest question that could ever be asked. What is it that you need? What is it that you need? Imagine if a phone solicitor called you and said, tell me what you need the most. And you said... I need friendship with God. I need the love and friendship of God. I need deliverance from sin. I need forgiveness of sin. I need cleansing of my heart and mind. I need hope in this life. I need to know that there's something more than this world. I need to have a way to overcome my fear of death. And he, he hangs up on you for a change. I'm going to actually try that the next time a phone solicitor calls me. He'll go, gotta go, click. Ernest Hemingway wrote, 
Life is a dirty trick. A short journey from nothingness to nothingness. There's no remedy for anything in life. Man's destiny in the universe is like a colony of ants on a burning log, unquote. He was a brilliant writer. He could, in the most compelling ways, describe things. You know, it's one thing for a person to say life has no meaning. And it's another thing for a person to think long and hard and deeply about the meaning of life. Is life a dirty trick? What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? William Newell points out that Jesus, again, doesn't enter heaven by virtue of his perfection, but by his blood. Now think about what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Jesus dies on the cross. He rises from the dead. He goes to heaven. He might have entered heaven at any moment during his perfect life. Did Jesus live a perfect life? Did he say perfect things? Did he do perfect things? If anyone had the right to go to heaven at any moment for for whatever reason, it's Jesus. But Jesus doesn't go to heaven at any moment. Because if he went to heaven at any moment, he would have had to go to heaven the same way that he came to the earth alone. The writer of Hebrews is pointing out that Jesus is going to heaven with the sacrifice of his own blood because of you. He will endure the cross. He will suffer the shame. He will rise from the dead. He will take his own blood. Because you see, the way to heaven is paved in blood. Now, I want you to think about it. Remember what I said earlier? What do we need? We we need love and friendship with God. We need deliverance from sin. We need forgiveness. We need hope. We need life. And see, the point that the writer of Hebrews is making is that Jesus meets our every need. Do you need to have love and friendship with God? Jesus will provide that. Do you need forgiveness? Jesus will provide that. Do you need cleansing from guilt? Jesus will provide that. We could speak of his life. We could speak of his miracles. But the writer of Hebrews points to his death. He sacrifices himself for our sins. And when we accept the sacrifice of Jesus, we no longer have to bear our own sin. And this is the point I was trying to make with the person who came into my office. But he was unwilling to admit that he really had sin and that sin was a problem and that the horror of his sin was going to require something so far beyond his ability to provide. Because you see, he thought that he could provide a good life and warm thoughts and fuzzy feelings. When it says in verse 15, and for this reason, he's the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions. Remember, we've already talked about what that word redemption means. It's the act of freeing, releasing, buying back. It was a word to describe people who were sold into slavery. 
And they needed to be purchased back. Maybe some of you have heard illustrations of young ladies who are caught up in sexual trafficking in, in the Middle East or, or the Far East or Africa. I, I, I had a person on my radio program who was involved in actually purchasing ladies, women, so that they could be bought out of the trade. The same image is used by Jesus. The ransom price for humanity's sin is death. Imagine you can free a woman in Africa for $20 or $100 and you're purchasing her right to leave that lifestyle and have a different lifestyle. What Jesus does is he purchases you. But the purchase price that's required, imagine, imagine what the purchase price is. What am I going to need in order to get you freedom? What am I going to need to get you forgiveness of sin? What am I going to need to provide for you cleansing and healing and hope and a future? God says, it's going to cost you everything. You see, the soul that sins, it shall surely die. It's life for life. The soul that sins, it shall surely die. What what do you require? Death. That's what I require. And Jesus will do exactly that. He'll pay the ransom price with his own sacrifice to free you from not just the bondage of sin, but the penalty of sin, but also the adoption price in order to place you into the family of God. So the writer of Hebrews is going to make two arguments that a will can't come into effect unless the testator is dead in verse 16 and 17. And the institution of this new covenant demonstrates that all things are cleansed by blood in verses 18 through 22. And so again, look at verse 16. God last will and testament for where there is a testament or an agreement there must also of necessity be the death of the testator for a testament is in force after men are dead since it has no power at all while the testator lives now we looked at this the last time that we were together and if you've missed um, this portion just I would encourage you to go to the media room or go on our website and, and get the teaching The new covenant is in in effect when Jesus dies. That's what the writer, the point that the writer of Hebrews is making. In other words, as God communicates his last will and testament, God's will and testament is this. It is God's will that none perish. It's God's will that you experience forgiveness and hope, forgiveness and freedom. God's last will and in testament, the terms and the conditions can be met with the death of the testator. What's the terms and the conditions? I'll love you and I'll forgive you. What's it going to cost? It's going to cost a meaningful sacrifice. So what is the point? God sets the terms and the conditions. By the way, I already told you that, you know, last year my mother died in October, my brother died in November, my aunt died in December. What all three of them had in common is none of them had a will. They died in test state. And so we had to try and figure out what their will is. 
The writer of Hebrews is basically saying God has communicated his will. He's left a covenant. He's left instructions. He's left the terms and the conditions of the covenant. What are the terms and uh, and conditions of the covenant? God says, I will send my son. You know the most famous passage in all of the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. The terms and the conditions are, I'll send my son. He'll die for you. He'll be the full and satisfying solution to the problem of your sin. So here's my portion. My son will die for your sin. Here's your portion. You have to turn from your sin and turn to him. Trust him. Believe him by faith. You know, men give their estates to those that they care about. God gives all things to us in Christ. Jesus has obtained the more excellent ministry. He's the mediator of the better covenant, which is established on better promises. Now, what's interesting is that sometimes in the real world in which we live, that a person's will can be contested, can't it? Imagine you understand the will and the wishes of the person who's died. And somebody comes up and, and they, they basically say, well, you know, he wanted to leave everything to his children or she wanted to leave everything to the grandchildren. And somebody enters into the dispute and says, no, no, um, she wanted this or that. Clever lawyers and greedy relatives. Let me put it to you differently. Can clever lawyers and greedy relatives sometimes undermine the wishes of people who have died? Yeah, you guys know the answer. The answer is yes. Are there wicked people, sinful people, deceived people who can undermine the wishes of God and the provision of God in Christ? I think that the answer is yes. So what will God do? God will bring Jesus back to life to make sure that his instructions are followed to the letter. You see, you can't undermine God's will. You can't undermine Jesus' provision. Can Jesus make sure that his will and wishes are honored? I think that the answer is yes. Human beings don't normally get to come back to life to make sure that their wills are honored. But our benefactor has the power of an endless life to make sure that his wishes are honored. And so in verse 18, look what it says. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. Well, let's see if we can follow the author's train of thought. Once again, the issue is blood. In the Old Testament, the furniture in the temple, the tabernacle, The menorah, the laver, 
The things that were in the temple or the tabernacle were cleansed by blood. When Moses instituted the old covenant in Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 8, God gave the law to Moses. Moses shared the law with the people. Then Moses made a sacrificial offering to the Lord. And for those of you who are kind of unfamiliar, you might just turn to Exodus chapter 24 just real quickly. In in Exodus chapter 24... Verses 3 through 8, I should have marked it, but I didn't. But I'm going to read it to you. It says, So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we're going to do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning. He built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it into the basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar then he took the book of the covenant that's Genesis that's what he's written so far in the law he took the book of the covenant he read in the hearing of the people and they said all that the Lord has said we will do and we will be obedient verse 8 and Moses took blood He sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. It's a blood covenant in what sense? That the terms and the conditions of the covenant are made in such a way That it is to be honored. God gives the law to Moses. He shares the law with the people. They make an offering to the Lord. This was a dedication service. To commemorate the institute of God's first covenant. I want you to think about how the covenant was instituted. It was instituted by the death of an innocent victim. Because it's going to become a type and a picture of a future death, of a future innocent victim. What does the Old Testament and the New Testament have in common? The Old Covenant was a covenant instituted by death. The New Covenant is also a covenant that is instituted by death. In the First Covenant, it's the death of an animal. In the second, it's the the death of, of Jesus. By the way, when Moses says, this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you in verse 20. This is not the only example that Moses held... Um, a dedication service when the tabernacle was being completed and sprinkled with blood. But as you read throughout the Bible in the Old Testament, the sprinkling of the blood, the thing that you should be thinking about is, oh, this is a type and a picture of the purity that God demands and requires 
How can you be pure? How can you be purified? The reoccurring theme and the reoccurring picture is the sacrifice of Jesus purifies you. The sacrifice of Jesus purifies you. The the sacrifice of Jesus makes you whole. In verse 19, for when Moses had spoken every precept to the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself, that's the covenant, and all the people. In other words, The contract is sprinkled, or we might say, signed in blood. Saying, verse 20, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? Doesn't it sound like the familiar words of Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, which we're going to look at in just a moment. Remember where it says he took a cup, he drank it, and he said, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant. In verse 21, it says, then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and the vessels. These are the instruments of the ministry. In verse 22, and according to the law, Almost all things are purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there's no remission or there's no forgiveness of sin. Now, again, now we pause again. Because think about all the people who want to have forgiveness of sin absent a sacrifice. Hey, you know what? I want to be saved. Well, that's great. But I can't bring myself to believe in a God who would allow his own son to die for my sin. Why does there have to be a sacrifice? Because you underestimate the wickedness of your own sinful condition. You don't understand how great the debt and how severe the penalty. Well, I want to be saved. But I don't believe in Jesus, and I don't believe in his sacrificial death. The terms and conditions that God has made is that in order for you to be acceptable, it's based on what Jesus has done. The phrase, remember the shedding of blood, translates one very long Greek word, found only here in the Greek New Testament. And according to scholars, it's the shedding of blood and slaying. It's not just being accidentally cut. It is the ritual sacrifice of an innocent victim. And now what I continue to tell you over and over again, salvation is always by faith. Salvation is always by blood. Salvation is always by a person. He says, quote, the main point is that the giving of life is the necessary presupposition of the remission of sins. This was prefigured in the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. But what could be actualized in the Old Testament has now been established as an eternal truth by the death of Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews is making the absolute unmistakable point that just like in the Old Testament in order to have an experience 
purification, it was going to require sacrifice and the shedding of blood. Humanity has always known without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, no cleansing, no forgiveness. And this is the argument that the writer of Hebrews is making. Jesus is the mediator of God's new covenant. Jesus shed his blood. Jesus paid the penalty. Jesus instituted the covenant. In Matthew 26, 28, Jesus says, for this is the is my blood of the New Testament shed for the remission of sin. So here's the big question. Did Moses have the authority to mediate and negotiate the old covenant between God and the people? What's the right answer? Yeah. So in the back of the mind of the Jewish person would be, does Jesus have the right? Does Jesus have the authority? Does Jesus have the ability to make this deal? By the way, if you've ever purchased someone, or someone, I'm not saying you bought slaves. (laughs) If you've ever purchased something, let me just be blunt. Has anyone ever tried to sell you something that did not belong to them? You don't have to admit it in front of everybody. But maybe you've had that unfortunate experience where someone tried to sell you something that didn't belong to them. Does Jesus have the right, the authority, and the ability to negotiate the deal and mediate the plan and establish the terms and the conditions and the purchase price and then enforce the contract. That's the point! Salvation is always by blood. The blood must be innocent, verse 14. Shed, verse 22. Applied, verse 22. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, it says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that, who loved us and washed us from our sin in his own blood. There's a reason why the Bible says it over and over and over again. We sing the song. There is Power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. And salvation is always by grace. For grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any person should boast. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Imagine a person says, I want to come to God, not on the basis of what Jesus has done, but on the basis of what I can do. Then you need to be prepared to go to hell. (laughs) I know that sounds really blunt. But it remains true. The Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. People have always had to believe that there is a real God who loves them. 
that there's a real God who's willing to forgive them. That there's a, there's a real God who understands the broken condition and that he can actually set the terms and provide the provision that's necessary in order to make the sin go away. And so in verse 23 it says, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. You should look at that passage and go, What? What does this mean? Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens, those are the articles in the tabernacle, should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The articles in the tabernacle were sprinkled with the blood of bulls and goats. The articles in heaven are sprinkled with the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus. In my family, it was like a tradition every year. Whenever it would come on TV, we would watch The Wizard of Oz. And you guys all have seen it. Follow the yellow brick road. Follow, 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 follow the yellow brick road. It's the yellow brick road that is going to take you to the Emerald City. And what the writer of Hebrews is pointing out is that in order to get to heaven, you have to follow the path that's covered with blood. You have to follow the, the markers that are, 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 are filled with blood. There's Jesus. He's walking towards the gates of heaven. There's his bloody footprints. There's the bloody door. He's put his bloody hands on the bloody door and he's walked into the heavenly place and he sat on the heavenly throne and the blood flows and you follow the path of blood because if you don't follow the path of blood you won't go there that's what he's talking about and you, you should be shocked and surprised by what you read in verse 23 it would make sense that blood would need to purify blood would need to purify things on the earth why in the world would blood need to be in heaven isn't that a perfect place? Isn't that an eternal place? Isn't that a wonderful place? Why in the world would you need blood there? But a careful reading of the Bible, we discover something. Sin didn't just begin on the earth. It began in heaven. A wicked angel in rebellion and disobedience dishonored God. Now, I want you to think about this. Jesus could have gone to heaven at any moment without shedding blood. No bloody crown. No bloody nail prints. No holes in his feet. But remember, if he would have went to heaven that way, he would have not been able to take you. You see, the trail of blood and, and the covering of the blood is all a reminder that you are going to go with him. You are going to go with him. And if Jesus has shed his blood and he's left the mark of blood where he has traveled and where he goes, do you understand what is being said? It means that the very fact that Jesus is there and that he shed his blood for you, that the presence of 
of the blood in heaven means that you are welcome there. That is an amen. You look at the blood here. You look at the blood on the cross. You see the resurrected Savior. You see the bloody sacrifice. Who sprinkles the blood? Jesus. Where did he get the blood? Himself. Why does he have the blood? Because he has to purify you. He has to purify every place where you have been. But he also has to purify every single place where you're going to go. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is going to purify everything that you've ever done. Jesus is purifying everything that you're doing. Jesus will purify everything in the future. Verse 24, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true. In other words, Jesus didn't stay on the earth, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. Everything on this planet which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Read it for yourself. He went to heaven. He appeared in the presence of God. He went to heaven. He appears in the presence of God for who? For? Isn't that amazing? What do you need the most? I need to know God and I need to be loved by God and I need to have fellowship with God and I need to have access to God. And so Jesus will go to heaven to give you everything that you need and everything that you will ever need. Jesus appears. He now appears, for Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. Now, now, present tense, now to appear in the presence of God. This is important. He appears now. For what reason? To pray for us, to intercede for us. Jesus is in the presence of God in the here and the now. It isn't just a sacrifice in the past which delivers you from the penalty of sin. It is the reality that he is in the presence of God praying for you, interceding for you, working on your behalf, pleading, pleading in the presence of God. Verse 25, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus has appeared. Look at verse 26, past tense, to die for us. The writer of Hebrews said, in time and space, after Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Fast forward Adam to Noah. Fast forward from Noah to Abraham. Fast forward from Abraham to Isaac, Jacob, and, and Judah, and the 12 tribes. Fast forward to the Babylonian captivity. Fast forward to the return of the Jews. Fast forward to 
Bethlehem and a virgin giving birth and Jesus living the life. He appears. He appeared in the past. And then he marches down a a road to Jerusalem where he will die. He will die. He will die for your sin once forever. He doesn't die over and over and over again. The foundation of a world is is a reference to the creation and the ages. All of human history can be neatly packaged into three broad categories. Everything that happened before Jesus came. Everything that happened when Jesus came. And then everything that happens after Jesus came. And then Jesus, it says, has appeared. Look what it says. To put away sin. I I need you to note something. It doesn't say sins. It says to put away sin. The malevolent. The malignant. Wickedness. Characterized by humanity. By the sacrifice of himself. What does it mean to put away sin? Jesus has done what no animal sacrifice could ever do. The sacrificial death of Jesus is sufficient to put away sin, provide forgiveness for all people, for all time. I heard Robert Jeffers today say, sufficient for all, but efficient for only those who by faith will trust in Jesus as the Lord and the Savior. This is a sufficient sacrifice that will in fact, satisfy the payment for Adam and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and every single human being who has ever lived in every generation. And the writer of Hebrews says, and it is appointed once for men to die. But after this, the judgment. Why? The soul that sins, it shall surely die. By the way, in verse 27, when it says, and as it is appointed for men to die once. Are there exceptions to the rule? I'm going to suggest to you that the word appointed is also found in Luke chapter 19, verse 20, where it's translated in the literal sense, laid up in the King James, or laid away in the NIV. In two other places, it's used in the spiritual sense, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, 2 Timothy chapter uh, 4, verse 8, where something is set aside, something is laid up, some, something that is, is put on the side. Here, the thought seems to be, just as man is destined to die once, we share a common end, death, After that judgment, the point that the writer is making is that we all have an appointment with death. And we all have an appointment with judgment. In what sense? The believer, the believer's appointment with judgment is satisfied in the cross of Calvary and the death of Jesus. But what about the person who says, you know what? I want to go to heaven. Good for you. But I don't want to go by grace. And I don't want to go by faith. And I don't want to go by the sacrifice of Jesus.
well, how do you want to go to heaven? Well, I want to go to heaven on the basis of what I want, what I think, or what I care about. For that person, the only thing that's left is judgment. By the way, verse 27, and as it is appointed for men to die once, this single verse is the greatest verse to refute the billion people who believe in reincarnation. You know, people who believe in reincarnation believe that you come back and that your soul is recycled and you live certain lives until the washing and the cleansing can be, be done. Because imagine, imagine a person says, you know what, I don't want to go to heaven on the basis of grace through faith. I don't want to go to heaven on the basis of a sacrifice in Jesus. I want to go to, to Nirvana on the basis of a series of cycles where I am being cleansed over and over and over again. Through a multitudes of birth and rebirth as I work out my karmic debt. You're right, I can't pay God back in a single lifetime, but if you give me a billion lifetimes, I might be able to cut a deal with you. The writer of Hebrews says, you only get one chance, and this is that chance. Dorothy Parker, a well-known writer, was told that Calvin Coolidge had died. She said, how could they tell? Okay, I'll give up on the jokes. <laughs> the point? There are a lot of people who are dead and they don't even know it. There are rare exceptions to the rule. It would appear that Enoch is taken. He didn't die. Elijah was taken. He didn't die. It would appear that there's a final generation that will live on the planet Earth prior to the coming of Jesus. It's talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul intimates that there is a generation that will be alive at the time that Jesus appears. And Paul writes that the, that the amount of time that it takes for light to reflect off the surface of your eye. Boom, you're gone. A gravestone had this inscription. I expected this, but just not yet. It's appointed once for a man to die. When the infidel Tom Paine was dying, he was heard to say, Oh Lord, help. His surprised doctor said, What's this I hear, Tom Paine? A man who spent his lifetime ridiculing the Christian faith, scoffing at the Lord Jesus... As your physician, I ask you as a dying man, do you repent of your infidel views? Will you turn to Jesus for salvation? Payne replied, no, I can't believe on this man. Those were his final words. He died. An unbeliever. When John Owen, the great Puritan, lay on his deathbed, his secretary wrote in his name to a friend, I am still in the land of the living. Stop, said Owen. Change that and say, I am yet in the land of the dying, but I hope soon to be in the land of the living. This is why the Christian can with complete confidence say, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, 
but will have eternal life. It says in verse 28, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. In the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, Jews waited for the day of atonement. And you can imagine on the day of the atonement, the million plus Jews who had gathered to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast would wait for the priest to go into the Holy of Holies and to sprinkle the blood and to return. It wasn't just going into the tabernacle and it wasn't just sprinkling the blood. They had to make sure he came out because if he didn't come out, it meant that the sacrifice was unacceptable. Do you know what the writer of Hebrews is saying? So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time. The writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back for a number of different reasons. But one of the reasons that the writer of Hebrew includes on the laundry list of reasons why he's coming back is because the moment that he appears, then all of us can rest assured that God is completely satisfied with his sacrifice with his shed blood with forgiveness he's made it into heaven he has presented and paid the ransom and he is coming back to declare that fully and finally forever you will now be removed from the very presence of sin Jesus died. He appeared to remove the penalty of sin. He appears before God in heaven pleading your case so that the power of sin could be reduced. He will come back again and remove you from The presence of sin. Jesus appeared to die for us, verse 26 through 28. Jesus now appears to pray for us, verse 24. Jesus will appear to rule over us, verse 28. He appears in the past to pay the penalty. He appears in the present to pray. And he appears in the future to deliver. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, not as the sin bearer, but as the triumphant king. No wonder the writer of Hebrews says, why would you want anything other than Jesus? Why would you want anything other than a full and final pardon? Why would you want anything other than cleansing, forgiveness, hope, a future? Philip Bliss says, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. And this is only chapter 9. 
Here, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts even now for communion. Lord, as we celebrate our Jesus, as we celebrate his sacrifice, and Lord, as we celebrate his sacrifice, we are in effect celebrating his love. And Heavenly Father, we know, we know, we know, we know at this very moment, Heavenly Father, we know that our Savior, Jesus, is before you, interceding, pleading, praying, reminding you to look down on us in mercy and grace and freedom. That Jesus has done everything so that we could with confidence and boldness bow our head and close our eyes that we could cry out to you in thanksgiving for everything that you've done but also Lord that we could cry out to you even now for that person who's living a life of such emptiness and darkness, who like Ernest Hemingway, who thinks that we're just like a colony of ants on a log ready to burn forever and ever. For that person who's living such a life of emptiness, such a life of darkness, such a life of hopelessness. Lord, I pray that they would come to the realization that a real Jesus loves them, that a real Jesus died for them, that a real Jesus entered into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and that you are completely, completely, completely satisfied with what Jesus has done. And so, Lord, now prepare our hearts as we think carefully about this wonderful sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.